My name is Ronnie. If you haven't met me, I'm, I'm a pastor here at Doxa, and then I lead this ragtag group of college students called the Salt Company. Are you guys out here anywhere? <laughs> it's going to be fun when we look back at like the you know the early years of doing that to the future. So stick with us. That was great, guys. We'll work on it. We'll work on it. We got it twice a week. Hey. We are, we're jumping into the book of Acts, uh, not today, but next week. Today, we're finishing a three-week series that we've titled Above All Love. So if you guys want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4, that's where we're going to be today. So guys, this series, Above All Love, it came from this sense among us that, that as God, like Rob was saying, is doing amazing things around us, and we're kind of doubling down to figure out, like, how do we move forward? How do we participate in that? We have to draw this line in the sand, and that line is love. Like, our church, the deepest motivation, what drives us, our vibe, our feel, has to be love. And the reason, guys, is 1 Corinthians 13 says that Christian activity, talking, worshiping, like, things that Christians do without love, it's like a clanging gong or a cymbal. You guys know what a clanging gong or a cymbal sounds like? Does anybody have that? That's what's set on your iPhone that wakes you up in the morning? Guys, the, the line of, of, of love for us, this line in the sand, is the difference between us being a compelling church in our city or an annoying church in our city. We want to be compelling or annoying. Everything that we do, no matter how talented that we are, if it's not marked by and felt by our city with love, then we're going to be like a clanging gong, an annoying symbol. And so week one, we looked at loving one another. Last week, we looked at loving the forgotten and the vulnerable in our city. And that today, we're looking at loving the lost people that are far from God. And even as I say that, I just want to frame it up for us real quick because I'm not saying like this is about an us versus them type of a thing. Like here's us in this room and then it's them outside of these walls. What I'm actually talking about is a humanity against God type of thing. That's the story that the Bible tells. It's not people against people, but it's actually people teaming up to rebel against their creator, God. That's what it means to be lost, separated from God. And that's where we all naturally start our lives at. Jesus himself, in John chapter 3, he describes his own life mission as coming to save the lost. Listen, listen to what he says, famous verse, John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It was the love of God that saw a lost humanity and sent Jesus not to condemn it, but to save it. This is Jesus' life mission, and we see in the rest of the Gospel of John, his whole life plays out. He lives a perfect life on our behalf. He dies a death on the cross in our place. He rises victoriously from the grave, and then at the end of, of the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, it's going to come up on the screen, we have this scene of Jesus now talking to his followers, talking to people like us who say, I want to follow Jesus. And this is what he says. On the evening of that day, so the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. So as Jesus stands among them, they, they weren't expecting this. They thought it was all over. They thought that when they put him in the grave, it was over. But Jesus has resurrected and he has something to say to his people. Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then here's the key thing that Jesus says. Okay, Jesus standing there, showing them his hands in his side. They see that this is a resurrected Savior of the world that still bears the marks of his crucifixion, which is how he saved us. And look at what he says. 
As the Father has sent me, look at me, look at my scars, I am sending you. Imagine being the disciples sitting there cowering in fear, now seeing the resurrected Jesus, and he says, the same love that God sent me with the world to save, I'm now sending you out to do the very same thing. So the question for us as a church, Doxa, is will we be a compelling church that loves a lost world, or will we be an annoying church that just does a bunch of stuff? Jesus wants to send us out in his love today. And so here's my kind of aim in, the, in this message. We're going to be looking at a story in John chapter 4, okay, in between those two scenes that I just showed you of an interaction that Jesus has with the woman at the well. Okay, so it's a, it's a famous story, and it's a great picture for us of when Jesus says, as, I am sent, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Look at my scars. He's saying, this is what love looks like. So we're going to watch Jesus, and he's basically going to show us three ways that he loved her, and then at the end, he's going to send us out with the same message that he sent those first disciples. So let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 4. We'll start the story in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, point number one, what does love look like? What does this love Jesus is sending us out to look like? Love crosses obstacles to get to people. It's the first thing we see with Jesus. So all of us right now, as you think about your life, the people that God has put in your path, there's people there, but there's these obstacles that are in our way, that are in your way, that are keeping you from moving towards them in love. And this woman, that's why she's so shocked. She says, what are you doing talking to me? You're a Jewish man, a Jewish teacher, Jewish leader. I'm a, a woman from Samaria. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She's like, why, why are you busting through all these obstacles right now? This is very abnormal. Any upstanding Jewish man, especially a rabbi, he would not have engaged with this woman. But we see Jesus does because he loves her. So first, there's like this obstacle of a stigma attached to her, okay? So she's a Samaritan. We talked about this a little bit last week, but Jews, they despised Samaritans. They used to share a family history, a family, family lineage, but the Samaritans had breeded with the, the surrounding nations, so they were kind of like ethnic half-breeds. They'd also started to worship the gods of these other nations, so they're religious outcasts. So when you say Samaritans, there's just this stigma, this obstacle in front of you and the actual real person who has that label. Jesus blows through it. Now, she also has the status of woman. She says, how, how is it that you, a Jewish man, are talking to me, not just a Samaritan, but a woman? Because women at this time were treated as second-class citizens without rights. But Jesus, one of the most astounding things about him as you read the rest of his life and ministry is he elevates women back to the place of dignity and value and power that God created them with. Jesus blows right through the status of woman. And then the last thing to notice is you notice that she's all by herself at the well. And it says it's the sixth hour, which means it was about noon, the hottest time of the day. This is really strange because the time to go to the well would have been with the other women of her city in the morning when it was cool, but she's here all alone. What's this about? 
It's because she has a story that has been marked by shame. That's the third obstacle that Jesus just runs right over, and Jesus knows. He knows her story. But this is a story that had kept her from wanting to be around other people and that had kept people from being around her, but not so with Jesus. So, so here at the beginning, we just see this picture of this woman as lost and far from God as you can be, living in a nation that doesn't worship the God of Israel, alienated from her own people that were themselves outcasts, and Jesus moves towards her in love. And he's asking us to do the same, doxa. So just think about the people in your life. Like we, Our lives are filled with people that they, they have a stigma, right? They're a part of that part of town. They're passionate about that political party. They're of that ethnicity. They've made those types of decisions sexually with their lives. Like there's, a, there's this thing that you know about them, and it's a stigma, and maybe it scares you or maybe it disgusts you, but you, you, it's keeping you from moving towards them in love. Maybe it's their status. Maybe there's something about them and kind of where they sit in society, and so you see no perceived benefit in associating with them. In fact, they might drag you down. It basically boils down to, you would never say it, but it's like, they're, they're unworthy. They're unworthy of me moving towards them. Or maybe it's their story. Maybe you've got a neighbor or friend at work, and, and you, they've, they've talked openly about their lives, and so you know their backstory. They practice a different religion. They're an atheist. They're so successful that you're kind of like, I, I know your life story, and I, just, I can't imagine that you would actually want to know anything about, about Jesus. Like You just kind of have this read on them that it's very unlikely. Very unlikely. And so you don't move towards them in love because you know something about their story. And you know what Jesus would say to all of this? What Jesus would say is we're kind of processing the people out in front of us that he's called us to love, and we say, but Jesus, they're unworthy, they're unlikely. He'd say, oh yeah, totally. You are totally right about that. And just as kind of the pressure gets taken off your shoulders and you start to walk away, you hear Jesus start to say something else, and he says, but so were you. So were you. Isn't that the whole point of the gospel? So were you. You were unlikely and unworthy. I came to save the unworthy. That's why the word is called grace. The type of love, if you're, if you're new to church, when we talk about the love of God, we're not talking about a love that any of us were able to earn or that any of us were able to deserve. None of us were worthy for God. It was the fact that he came and loved us that has now made us worthy. He didn't love us because we were lovely. He loved us to make us lovely. Jesus says, you were unworthy too. And you were so unlikely. You were so far from God. Nobody can find their way back to God. There, there are people sitting here this morning that are just as lost as the people that are still hung over from last night and they're still at the bar. You can be just as lost in church as you can be anywhere else. This is, this is all of our stories. All of us unworthy, all of us unlikely candidates for God, incapable of finding him. And that's why Jesus came to find us. For God so loved the world that he sent his son on a rescue mission to bring good news. The gospel is good news for sinners, good news for rejects, good news for screw-ups, good news for outcasts, good news for people that don't think they deserve it because they're in the exact place of actually receiving what God is actually offering, which is called grace, love that we don't deserve. And so this woman is just sitting here shocked. And at this point, Jesus hasn't continued the conversation, but she's just like, she is just so, so shocked that he's actually talking to her. And he's just asked her this simple question. And she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And what Jesus is going to go on to say is, I'm asking you for water because I actually want you to ask me for something. 
I'm not here to take anything from you. I want to give something to you. I want to give you the greatest gift. And that's the next thing that we're going to see in verses 10 through 15. The next thing that love does is it offers people, these people that we now see as people, it offers them the greatest gift they could ever have. Look at verses 10 through 15. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do, you, where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Love offers people the greatest gift. Jesus basically in these five verses, he's like, I came here asking you for water, but what I really want to do is I want to give you this thing called living water. And she's a little bit confused, right? So Jesus brings us up, says, if you would have known, he's like, you don't know who I am and you don't really know what I'm offering you. And she clearly doesn't. If you look back at verses 11 and 12. She's like, How, like how's that going to work with the well? Like the, the well is really deep. You don't have the proper tools. And, you know, Jacob, like this, this famous Jewish ancestor of mine, like he was here. Are you, are you trying to say like this well that Jacob made? Like you can do better than that or something? Like who do you, who do you think you are coming in here and offering this to me? So she does not understand. She doesn't know, and Jesus is just kind of sitting there with a, with a silent grin, and he's like, if you only knew who was talking to you right now. And then he goes on to this thing about living water. So let's talk about water for a second, right? Uh, the other day, the water line, or whatever it is called, out at the road where the water exits your house, right? Like, that broke in my, on my street, and so they closed down the whole street, and, and me and my son Jackson, he's two and a half years old, just had a blast sitting there like watching them fix it. Really, really fun sitting there. He's into trucks and all those things right now. And so I'm sitting there with Jack and, you know, it's not like this super uh, deep moment or anything, but I'm just pointing out to what they're doing. And the thing that struck me is that they brought like seven massive pieces of equipment and trucks to like fix this one little part. Like it was a, a big deal. They pulled up with with uh, like four big white trucks, a big digger type of thing, and they're digging into our ground and like all so that we can get water. And honestly, like, yeah, like water is that important. I'm sitting there with Jack and I'm like, I guess this makes sense. This isn't overkill because if we don't have water, water is like the, the essence of life. Water is essential for life. Do you guys know that the human body is basically mostly made up of, of water? I learned that when I was studying uh, Elon Musk's colonizing Mars uh, expedition thing, okay? So let me just talk to you about this for a second. There's this thing called SpaceX that is in the works. If you haven't found out about it, just Google Elon Musk, can I go to Mars? And you're going to find his website. And he's got like this whole plan. 2022 is like the test pilot mission. And then 2024 is when, if you want to, you can, you can go there with him. And let me just read you a little quote from his, his uh, website about like his plan to go to Mars. Our aspirational goal is to send our first cargo mission to Mars in 2022. The objectives for this mission will be to confirm water resources, highlight, confirm water resources, identify hazards, put in place initial power, mining, and life support infrastructure. A second mission with both cargo and crew is targeted for 2024, <laughs> listen to this part, with the primary objectives of building a propellant depot. We need one of those, right? We need, we need a propellant depot on Mars and preparing for future crew flights. 
The ships from these initial missions will also serve as the beginning of the first Mars base from which we can try to build a thriving city and eventually a self-sustaining civilization on Mars. Amen. <laughs> How exciting is that? But listen, Mars is intriguing to us, right? Because we've seen like remnants of frozen water and lot, some of you in here seriously know a lot more about the, the science of this than, than I do and we can talk about that after. But here's the point. Mars is intriguing because it might have water. And then one of the first things you need to do when you go there is we're going to need to set up water. And so you can take this seven-month-long space shuttle flight with Elon Musk, figure out life story behind the name and what that all means, and you'll get there, and you guys got to set up water or else you're not going to survive. And Mars's gravity is so different from ours, and the fact that we're mostly made of water means that we are not compatible with it unless we set up this new ecosystem and all these different things. Water is really important. Water is essential to life. What is Jesus saying? As important as that water is that she's digging up from that well, it's like not to downplay the importance, but I have something so much more important that I'm trying to offer you. And you're here at this well by yourself, and it's not working out, is it? What if, what if I could give you water that would actually quench your thirst? What if I could give you a type of water, and I'm using this as a metaphor here, but a type of water that is going to help you live not just for 60 years and not just on Mars, but for eternity and in the whole universe? That's what Jesus is offering. And he hasn't said it yet, but he's like, yes, I'm greater than Jacob. I made Jacob. Yes, I'm greater than this well. I made this well. Yes, I'm greater than Elon Musk. I know all of these things. Jesus is offering living water. It's got something to do with eternity. The woman still doesn't clearly understand what he's referring to, but Jesus is actually referencing back to an Old Testament passage, Jeremiah chapter 2, and the connection he's making that living water is a relationship with the eternal God and creator himself. Okay, so look with me at Jeremiah chapter 2. It should come up on the screen. This is a, a description of heaven looking down on a lost world. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water, broken wells. So as Jesus talks to this woman at the well, what he's really saying is, hey, you're lost. And to be lost means you've cut yourself off from the source of life, which is God himself. At this well, you're currently trying to carve out a sense of life and meaning for yourself through another way, but it's not working. It's not working, is it? And here's my point. If we're to love a lost and broken world, we have to give them the greatest gift. We have to give them God himself. It can be tempting to, to offer people things that are going to help them temporarily, physical water, but we have to get to the point where we're offering them the living water. We're offering them God himself. So you're talking to your neighbor, right? He's lost, he doesn't know Jesus, and he lost his job. And that is, that is like, like thinking about society, like that is a massive problem that needs to be fixed. Like unemployment is a problem. Unemployment is a real need that needs to be met. Unemployment is a real need that I'm sure some of us in this church are going to have great ideas about as you go out and start businesses. Like it is a real thing. We need physical water to live. But if in loving your neighbor and if having conversations with your neighbor about his unemployment... Somewhere down the road, you don't get to the point where you're also offering him the living water, offering him God himself. You haven't brought love to its full extent that Jesus is asking you to. And that's what he's doing with this woman. He's offering her something better. He's offering her something 
eternal. He's offering her a relationship with him, himself. And so look what she says in verse 15. Okay, so she, Jesus must just be really compelling in this moment because she's, she's hearing it and she still doesn't understand, but she's like, sir, give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. I'm tired of coming here by myself. I'm tired of being ashamed. I'm tired of being thirsty. Sir, give me this water. But we can, we can already tell she still doesn't know who he is because she calls him sir, right? She doesn't yet know that he's God, and she still thinks that what he's fixing is a temporary problem. And this is such a normal response. And this can happen, right? When, when you talk to people that are, that are lost and far from God, they're, they're not going to yet understand that what you're offering them is God until you do this thing that Jesus does that we don't want to do and that our culture doesn't want us to do. Jesus is as compelling and as clear and as knowledgeable of this stuff as it gets, but even as he's talking to her about the living water, she still doesn't get it. So what does he do? Talks about her sin, right? Like the, the one thing that, that our current cultural mood would say, like just that is the epitome of not loving, right? Don't talk to people about how, how their beliefs and what they believe about the world has led them down a different path. Like de- definitely don't call it sin. Don't call out somebody for what they're doing wrong. But Jesus is love and he hasn't switched moods here. And what he's going to do is he's actually going to expose her sin, expose the broken well she's been drinking at so that she'll actually see the living water and want it. So that's where we go next. Look down at verse 16. So you want the living water, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And this is the moment where she's been, she's been excited, she's been listening, but now she'd be stopped dead in her tracks. Time standing still, and you'd imagine she's almost wondering, like, is, is, he just, is this going to be just like every other interaction about this? How did he know? Because now he's got his hand on her story, and she has to own up to it. And she's sitting there in her shame, the shame of her story. And how does she respond? says, I have no husband. Again, silence. What's going to happen? What's Jesus going to stay? And look at the first couple words that come out of his mouth. You are right. I know. You're right. And now what's going on in this moment? Has the thing just shift from Jesus loving her to now Jesus trying to embarrass her? Has it just shifted from Jesus moving towards her with love to now treating her just like everybody else has treated her. And the reason we know the answer is no is because he says, I know, and then he stays there. He's still there. He, he came all this way. He came for this very reason. He's not surprised. When she says, I have no husband, he doesn't say, oh, I, was gonna talk, I thought you had your life more together and I was going to offer you this living water. He says, no, that, like, that is the very reason why I came. Look at what he says. Look at what he says in verse 17. The woman says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What you have said is true. So Jesus knows And guys, he has to go there because she's not going to understand that she needs a savior until she understands that she's a sinner that needs one. So this is out of love. What did Jeremiah say? He said, be appalled, O heavens, be shocked at this, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Sin is forsaking God for someone or something else that you think will satisfy you. And Jesus has to point that out to her. 
He has to say, you're pursuing sin, like you're, you're digging a well that can't hold water. And for this woman, the well was men and relationships. Now she's having this moment of clarity with Jesus where it's like he's pointed it out, but he hasn't gone anywhere. He's pointed it out and he says, I know, but the tone in his voice still feels like love. And you wonder how she's feeling right now. Now the other side of the coin as Jesus has his hand on her sin, is there's a, there's a pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan named Dr. Micah Edmondson. And he looks at this passage and he says, one of the things that people always point out is that this woman was sinful and that Jesus knows it. And that's just true of all of us. We're all sinners. We've all walked away from God. But he says, I think there's something else going on here. No little girl grows up wanting this to be her story. No little girl wants five husbands. This was her story. This is what had happened. But this woman had grown up in a society where she had no legal rights, where men took advantage of her. She, she leaned into and participated in some ways. She just had to because she's a sinner like us. But she is also a victim of sin. She has also suffered. And this is all of our story. In this room, we're all both sinners and sufferers, people that are responsible for our own sin, but also people that have been affected by the sin of others. And Jesus knows this. So, so Edmondson points out there's a, a huge note of just compassion in Jesus' voice when he says, I know. And the woman sees it, and she says, you must be a prophet from God to know my story like that. Look at verse 18, or verse 19. The woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and and in truth. So guys, at this point in the conversation, Jesus has moved towards her in love. He's offered her the greatest gift, but she just didn't understand it. But now what he's done is he's made her available the opportunity to see salvation because she saw her sin. She knows that Jesus sees her suffering and he's about to tell her. And what he just said is, I came here to rescue them, rescue you from both of those things. Jesus came to save sinners and sufferers. He says the Father is seeking worshipers. She's like, okay, I know that I've got to like climb a mountain or travel to Jerusalem to meet, to meet God. Like, is, is that right? And he's like, actually, no. You don't have to do any of that. You don't have to figure out a way as a, as a woman caught in this cycle of relationships to figure out how to travel to Jerusalem. You don't have to climb a mountain. God is actually seeking out people. You don't have to climb up because God has come down. He's looking for people to worship him. That's what you've been doing at this well, is you've been worshiping at the well of relationships and men, but you've seen, you've seen and I've shown you that it's a broken well. You can now drink water that satisfies. That's what that means, like that God is seeking people to worship as he's saying, I am seeking people to experience the true life that I want to offer them. And then look what the woman says in verse 25. She says, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he is who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. So she's like, I, I get it. I believe. I've actually heard that there's some type of hero that is going to one day walk into the human story. He's going to one day come and fix it all. And she's like, yes, and wouldn't that be great? And then the punchline, what does Jesus say? I who speak to you am he. 
Everything had been leading to this moment. Jesus reveals himself as the Savior, and this is how he saves her, okay? This is, this is how the gospel works. At this moment in John chapter 4, Jesus' body, it's fully intact, right? It's fully intact. He has not yet gone to the cross. He has not yet risen to the grave like we saw in John 20. But at the end of John 20, when we see his scars and we see him standing there in glory, his, his body, it tells the story of just how he saves humanity, we talked about how sin is described as cutting yourself off from the life source, cutting yourself off from the fountain, going after things that are downstream and trying to find life in them, experiencing a thirst that is never quenched. How can living water come from God into a life like that, a life that's been cut off? Well, in John chapter 19, as Jesus is hanging at the cross, let me just read this account to you. Picture Jesus hanging on the cross, and this is what happens. Jesus knowing that it was all now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on the hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So the last thing that Jesus did before he died is he says, I'm thirsty, and then they gave him sour wine. Later that day, the soldiers, they come to break the legs of the others who've been crucified to make them die quicker. But when they come to Jesus, they see that he's already dead. So they didn't break his legs. And then one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and out of there came blood and water. He who saw it bore witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. These things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says, they will look on him who is pierced. Guys, at the cross, Jesus cries out, I thirst, because he was trading places with us. Jesus was experiencing the thirst that the woman at the well had, and he was given sour wine instead. So there's this historical fact that he was thirsty, this historical fact that he was given sour wine, but this spiritual reality that it's pointing to, that Jesus was taking on the sin of the world. Jesus was being cut off from God. Cosmic thirst. He was suffering the full weight of sin, the full wrath of God for sin. And then after he dies, after he goes through that, after he chooses to be thirsty for us, what happens? His side is pierced and blood and water come out. And we're reminded of what he said to the woman. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Doxa, a lost world that is searching for life needs to hear Jesus say that to them. I who speak to you am him. Look at my scars. The life that you're looking for flows out of my veins for you. So where does all of this lead us? We've seen Jesus now in his example of love. This is what it looked like for Jesus to come and seek and save the lost. But what's it going to take for us to move out in that same love? What's it going to take for us to jump over obstacles and get to people? What's it going to take for us to give them the greatest gift, God himself, and for us to have the courage and the love to reveal sins so that we can actually give people salvation? And that's where we get the end of the story. This whole time, Jesus has been doing this on his lunch break. 
So interesting. So, so to bring it down to, I know this was like high and lofty of like Jesus cosmically saving the universe, but this whole conversation that he had with the woman was actually happening while his disciples were out to get lunch. Look at verse 27. So just as the climax happens, I who speak to you am he, just then his disciples come back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. So they're they're talking to him about lunch. Like they brought back lunch. They see this interaction with the woman and they're like, what was that about? That was a Samaritan. That was a woman. I'm not sure what they were talking about, but Jesus, we've got the food here. (laughs) Like let's let's have lunch. And Jesus is now entering back in the conversation with a little whiplash. And look, look what he says. He said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Like, it's like, you, you got my order wrong. Like, you don't like, and they're like, he's like, no, listen, here's, here's what I'm saying. My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. What is, what is Jesus saying here? His disciples come in and like us, they want to talk about lunch. They want to talk about temporary things. And I love lunch. I love sandwiches more than probably anybody in this room. I do. I love lunch. But Jesus, what he's saying is on my lunch break, I started, I met this woman. I saw her as a person. I jumped over the obstacle. I offered her something way better than physical water. And I'm inviting you to do the same. Look, lift up your eyes from your sandwich and look at the harvest. Look at what God is doing. And you got to apply that to whatever that means for you. But the principle is this. Like, there are, there are things that are good and right for us to give ourselves to in this world. There are, there are things that are good, but they are temporary. And amidst these, these, like, temporary things that God has given to us to enjoy in the meantime, he's doing things that are eternal. And there are people that are lost. And Jesus says, God has been at work. The harvest is white. You look at people and you're like, it's so unlikely that my neighbor would ever become a Christian. And Jesus says, lift up your eyes. The harvest is white. You don't know what I've been doing in that person's story. This whole encounter takes place at this place called Jacob's Well, which was a place rich with history of God being on the move. And Jesus knows that. But his disciples, they're, they're thinking about lunch. So Jesus says, lift up your eyes and join me in what I'm doing. And that, that's the call for us, right, Doxa? to lift up our eyes, to let love move us out there and to have just this expectation that God is going to do something we could have never expected, that God could save that person, that you sharing the gospel, the good news about Jesus with that person could be the thing that brings them home. And then look how it all ends. I just titled this, this is what happens when Jesus comes to your city. Look at verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. 
Imagine, guys. Imagine if the story that started to circulate around Madison was the story about Jesus. Imagine if we got out there and we shared our testimony. You notice that that's the spark, right? It's it's this woman encounters Jesus. She gets out there and just says, come see a man. Come see a man that told me everything. He, He saw right through me. He saw my sin. He saw my suffering. Then he stayed there and he offered me the greatest gift. Come see a man. And she starts to share the good news about Jesus. Imagine if that started to happen in Madison, and that's not the current reality. The word on the street in Madison, the the talk is not Jesus, but it only takes a spark. And that spark is love. It's remembering our own testimony and how God has loved us, and then it grows into this thing where we start moving out towards people because Jesus said, as the Father is sending me, I'm sending you. We lift up our eyes and we see people, not obstacles, with stories that want to be redeemed. We lift up our eyes and we see that God has so much more in store for people than just giving them physical water. And we lift up our eyes and we see that the story of salvation God wants to write in our city, it's breaking in. It's replacing the broken wells of sin. And so this is the spark. It's no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And Jesus, with his nail-scarred hands and his glorified, risen body, the same way that he spoke to those first disciples, he's speaking to us now through his word and saying the same thing. As the Father has sent me into the world with love, I am sending you. Let's pray. Jesus, we... You saw right through us. You saw right down to to what was really going on, and you saved us. You went to the cross for our sins. You took our place. You've given us living water. I pray that even even as we sing here in a minute, that, that we would taste that. God, just the satisfaction of knowing that we we have you, that we belong to you, that we'll be with you forever. God, that the water that we drink is going to make us not live for 60 years, but 60 billion years. God, give us a sense of just the weight and the eternity of that as we sing. God, but like the woman from Samaria, I pray that that the gospel that saved us would start to now move through us and move us out into the city with love. Give us courage. Give us eyes to see. Lift up our eyes from temporary things to see the eternal story that you're writing right in front of us. Thanks for inviting us in to participate. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.